Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Nicholas Schmidt and Peter Boacek are organising planetary defence. But first up, here's the news of intuitive flying. Symbiotic Drones, the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems led by Professor Dario Floriano at the National Centre of Competence in Research Robotics in Switzerland, has developed the Flyjacket for flying drones intuitively without the need for joysticks. You just put your arms out and move your body the way you want the drone to move. Pretend you're flying and feel like you're flying. You don't have to actually put your arms out to fly the drone, as the fly jacket is reading your torso movement. But for some reason, most people find they fly better with their arms outstretched. The fly jacket is an upper body soft exoskeleton that senses the pitching and rolling of your upper torso to pitch and roll the drone, while you wear a first person view immersive video goggle headset. The arm supports offload the weight of your outstretched arms down to your hips, so you can fly for extended periods without getting tired. The researchers say you feel like you are the drone, because your body is the controller. The fly jacket is designed to be affordable and packed small enough to fit into a backpack so you can take it into the field. Currently, for fixed-wing drones, your torso only controls the direction of flight, so the team are researching more intuitive ways to control the speed without a throttle joystick. They're working on a way to intuitively control how you turn a multi-rotor drone without using a yaw joystick. They're looking at tactile feedback with cables so that you can feel the motion of the drone more directly through the jacket. The Fly Jacket is a part of a large interdisciplinary project called the Symbiotic Drone, which is aimed at developing technologies that could create a symbiosis between a human and a non-anthropomorphic robot. The wider group is looking at jackets that you could run or jump in to control four-legged robots, so that ultimately people can intuitively control and embody robots of many different shapes, configurations and sizes. The Laboratory of Intelligent Systems investigates the future of artificial intelligence and robotics at the convergence of biology and engineering, humans and machines. Their paper was published in IEEE Robotics and Automation Letters and was titled Flyjacket, an upper body soft exoskeleton for immersive drone control.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Planetary Defence. Nicholas Schmidt and Peter Boacek have been researching how to save the Earth without destroying the Earth. Astronomers have shown that asteroids and comets of various sizes are likely to hit the Earth in the future, but the tools to deflect them could also be used as weapons, so their deployment could start a war. If you blew up a comet or asteroid over the Earth, the debris could rain down everywhere. Nicholas Schmidt is a research fellow at the Institute of Political Studies at Charles University in Prague. His current focus is on how large technological changes can stimulate and enable new political structures, specifically planetary defence. Peter Boacek is a research fellow at the Institute for International Relations, also at Charles University in Prague. He's worked as a risk analyst, a foreign policy analyst, and he's a director of the online publication European Security Journal. Nicola and Peter propose an international planetary defence organisation with well-thought-through policies and laws to use the latest technology for the good of everyone. I caught up with them on their visit to Sydney and turned first to Nicola and began asking them, what are we defending the planet from? We are defending planet from asteroids and comets, and mainly from asteroids because we currently don't have means how to deflect big comets, which are bigger than asteroids, which are coming from different angles, which are faster than asteroids, and uh, which are way more unpredictable. However, asteroids are somewhere between Mars and Jupiter, on what we call asteroid belt, and time to time they are going closer, and if they go really closer, they may even hit Earth, and that's where our interest uh, in them, where we are interested in. So have any of them hit Earth and affected people in recent times? Well, certainly. Uh, the Chelyabinsk bolide is a perfect example. In 2013, it injured about 2,000 people, but even in the last year, there were about four big bolides at a ranch, about around one kiloton, that exploded. Two of them were not detected. They hit somewhere close to Moscow, one in Greenland. Two of them that were detected hit in Botswana or in Sudan, and they still possess a threat. But I guess the question is not what has happened recently, but what is the possibilities what can happen and that's uh, that's obviously a big threat that we should not simply disregard based on just some raw statistics and what's a bolide a bolide is uh, is an asteroid that's coming through an atmosphere and as it's as it's burning through the atmosphere then it explodes before it hits the earth so it essentially is not making an impact on ground but can have a pretty disastrous impacts on the area where it explodes so what's the danger into the future the danger, well, depends how we look at it. Obviously, first danger is that we might be subject to an asteroid or comet impact, but there's also a big danger that we deal with this thing incorrectly without some sort of international cooperation that will cause some further political instability. If there is an actor that is acting unilaterally without consensus from other parties, that could be viewed as a violation, firstly, of international law, of other treaties, or as a unilateral use of power that could be used 
or you could, could justify similar actions by other actors. So that's the area that we are focusing on mostly, how we get some sort of an international cooperation model that would enable us to defend us effectively against asteroids, but also in an effective, long-term, inclusive, democratic manner that would not cause political ripple effects or cause instability. So some of the ways that we might deflect asteroids from hitting the Earth might look like weapons. Yeah, that's true, and that's uh, that's fo- that's finally con- concern uh, political scientists as we are. And, uh, however, the reason why we are talking about planetary defense in recent years now, were two particular events. Now, one of uh, those the events now, were the Charlie Minsk asteroid in 2013, but another one which was uh, uh, more important to triggering this topic at all uh, was a comet now, which hit Jupiter in 1994, and that was the moment, the first moment when we detected a body like that. Now, uh, on the way to the inner part of solar system, and were actually, you know, able to turn the Hubble telescope you know, to actually watch the hit of the comet to the Jupiter. And you know, the result was that uh, the comet uh, disintegrated into 27 pieces or 26, 28, something like that. And every single piece you know, hit the the Jupiter, you know, and every single hit you know, caused a plum which was high about 3,000 kilometers. You know. So at that time, scientists realized. First, that we have the capability to detect these bodies, then, that uh, we might you know, begin discussing uh, what are uh, the deflection methods then, and that we have to talk about this problem to the politicians because finally it's politicians who can secure some funding for this research and even you know, for the deflection methods. But as you very <laughs> nicely pointed, it's finally not a scientific topic like only. No. It's it's mainly a topic for engineers no, to develop uh, these technologies. No. And of course, what engineers develop sometimes can be a concern for the politicians no, when um, the technology can be used in, in let's say, dual use propo- for dual use purposes. And that's where we are stepping in, no, that we would like to talk to the politicians as political scientists that uh, we should not be concerned that the others are developing some technologies no, that can be considered as a threat to national security. But we would rather like to see, let's say, all nations uh, around the world or those who are capable uh, to develop these technologies to cooperate and divide the work uh, that some can do, let's say, part of the technology, another can do another part of the technology, and that mutual interdependence uh, and um, on that technological, large technological complex can finally be that fuse that, that you know, despite new elections, uh, the project will be still ongoing. So there's a danger that there could be national interests getting in each other's way, that people could, well, step on each other's toes, so to speak, so that the asteroid doesn't get deflected. Right. And that's one of the main concerns that we are trying to focus on is how can we actually act against this global threat and how can we understand and perceive it in its true perspective, which is that it's going to affect the planet, not necessarily individual nation states. And when we talk about the threats, we realize that threats are constructed by its, you know, constituent politics. And all politics at this point is national and they're limited, you know, to nation states. Therefore, it's very hard to actually truly effectively address these global threats outside of this national outlook, outside of this national perspectives. Because since the politic, all politics is essentially national, it's really hard to understand to, to develop these global perception and uh, and put national interests back 
build, uh, behind global interests. So that's why we think there's a need for some sort of international cooperation that will have international political structures, political international decision making that will unlock and enable this global perception and consciousness to address effectively these threats, to understand them correctly by their nature, which is one affecting the whole planet. So how are we going to do this? I don't think that we are the only people on this planet uh, dealing with this problem or thinking about supranational bodies or supranational security regimes. What we found interesting and distinct on planetary defense is the fact that the asteroid threat is a binary threat, meaning that we can quite confidently detect the asteroid and confirm where the asteroid is or is not on a collision course. And then the threat is simply confirmed. It's not the case in, let's say, global war on terrorism, which can be considered as, a, to some extent, socially constructed threat because terrorists are going to be there unless we are going to fight them. It's, let's say, one of the perspective how to perceive uh, uh, war on terrorism. When it comes to climate change, uh, the discussion is going to be long for centuries. What's the desirable state of climate? Because uh, now we are you know, heading to a moment, or we are hopefully in the moment, that science can tell us, yeah, we are changing the climate and we are not going to survive if we are not going to change our behavior towards climate. But we like to say sometimes that unless we terraform Mars, we are not going to understand the climate here on Earth. Or we can say that dealing with the climate change on Earth can help us to terraform Mars. So which is a nice example of why space science in general can help us on Earth while even giving us uh, this you know, broader overview perspective of our existence on one planet while you know, dealing with atmosphere with other planets because you know, in a couple of centuries you know, this can be a very common discussion uh, whether we are successing with the terraforming Mars and what's the current status of, uh, of climate change. But in that moment we are probably going to be in a situation that the international or global decision-making is effective enough to make decisions related to scientific facts, but still leading to some you know, ethical outcomes of human flourishing, which is a term uh, well used in uh, ethical security studies. And it's not only that scientifically space can help us to figure out how we can deal with these threats and global issues on our planet, but also, let's say, sociologically, politically, it can help us to develop some sort of a more global consciousness um, because the threat is binary, it's clear, it is absolutely planetary, it is absolutely global, and if the solutions are much more clearer, it, it, it might be the enabling sort of area, enabling factor for us to moving our global consciousness to some sort of a more inclusive cosmopolitan model of global governance that would be expendable to other areas like climate change, like economy, like fighting global poverty and so on. So there are three deflection methods which are currently considered as the most probable. The first one is kinetic impactor, which says that you just develop a satellite that will hit the asteroid and transfer the momentum to it and to deflect it from the collision course. The second method is uh, the nuclear one, where we have various methods how to use nuclear power. And one of them is to make an explosion close to the asteroid, uh, which uh, heats up the asteroid and the fact that the asteroid is emitting its particles out you know, is pushing the asteroid to the other direction. But the nuclear weapon can be used differently. We can put the nuclear explosive device on a crane and on the other side on the crane to put a conventional explosive device. You know, and then you 
struck the asteroid crate and crater, and then the nuclear weapon goes to the crater, which is just emerging and heating up all the material, which is already which is already you know, leaving the asteroid, heating it up completely, and then pushing the asteroid with much momentum, and then just ablating the asteroid. So that's the reason why nuclear weapons are so effective in space against the asteroids. However, the third one, which we are the most interested in, is the usage of super powerful lasers and there are also various methods how to use them one of them is to go close to the asteroid and simply fire laser on it the other option is to fire laser for several dozens of million kilometers and that's that's the music of future because uh, we currently don't have the technology but we think it's uh, worth to begin working on that technology because lasers can be used uh, for various purposes as we are going to talk about And that laser method works with the concept of a photon push. The concept is based on a multi, uh, on a several kilometer wide laser array of several, you know, hundreds of lasers that are firing at the same time in a synchronized manner. And the amount of photons that it's sending is, and the amount of photons that is hitting the asteroids are actually creating enough enough push, enough of push to actually deorbit or just alter the track of the asteroid that it's taking and that's similar technology it's pretty much the same technology that is used in the concept of light sailing when you're hitting with the photons a, a sort of a probe so it sails and develops up to 20% of speed of light so that's that's you know the perfect example of this technology being used for planetary defense as well as you know deep space exploration but we have to say the current laser technology is not mature enough to use it for these ideas. However, uh, that's uh, what we would like to change. If astronomers see an asteroid or a comet that looks like at some point in the near future it will intersect the orbit of the Earth and possibly hit us, what happens next? How long would we have? The current procedure of the international decision making is just forming. and But let's say the procedure is already to some extent developed and the situation will be as follows. The astronomers will share the information that uh, the asteroid which they are following is going to hit Earth with certain confidence. The other astronomers will run calculations then to confirm or say increase the confidence now whether the asteroid is going to hit us. Then something what is uh, recent, what has been recently established and it's called International Asteroid uh, Warning Network will inform United Nations. And the United Nations currently has a body uh, which is called the Space Mission Planning Advisory Group that would that is currently developing scenarios how we would react. And you know the current international law is providing us only with one single instrument, and the instrument is the Security Council. However, when it comes to the decision making, the probability that, for example, the United States will act on on its own is like 100% or maybe, you know, it's highly probable. And one of the reasons why it is highly probable, especially when it comes to United States, it's not necessarily the fact that they are the biggest spacefaring nation in the world. The problem is that when the asteroid is going to Earth, we don't know the exact point on the surface where the asteroid is going to hit. We usually know only a corridor, which we call a risk corridor, where is the possibility that the asteroid will hit them. And this corridor can be long for several thousands of kilometers. So if the corridor comes across the United States, the only country which uh, the corridor will cross except the United States is probably Canada. So then the United States might discuss with Canada now what 
what kind of technology they would like to use and when it comes to United States and uh, the high probability is that they will use nuclear weapons because uh, they are the most effective uh, the probability of deflection is higher uh, in comparison to using different technologies and that's not what the other nations or what the, what the other countries would like to see because that unilateral behavior of one state uh, which founds itself being threatened by an asteroid uh, doesn't necessarily need to be reflected the same way by the other nations, especially when they use technology which is prohibited and usage of the technology which is prohibited despite the fact we have some kind of uh, exceptions in international law called a clause of necessity, where you can say violate international law in order to save yourself. The other nations or the other nuclear powers may be willing to deploy their nuclear weapons in space as well, which is exactly the kind of uh, undesirable result despite the fact that the move deflected the asteroid and that's what interests us at all uh, that just designing the deflection method and those scenarios uh, can uh, lead to different uh, outcomes uh, and political outcomes outcomes uh, which shapes the way how we live on this planet right and just considering the fact that there are only five world powers that have nuclear weapons they would be the only ones that possess the technological knowledge to actually do that. So the rest of the world would be essentially dependent on them, which doesn't allow them to defend their own country and their sovereignty and so on, and makes a reliant on these on these nations. So how would the decision-making process work in that way? And as well, this would lead that some countries would probably try to use this unilateral use of, of nuclear strike against an asteroid as an excuse to deploy weapons for that for that matter, for that use in space. And obviously you create the whole chain of events that are going against all the international treaties, placing weapons in space and so on. So that's the main problematic thing that we're trying to address. And one of the things that we're trying to look at is how we can make something that it's much more representative than a system based on nation states. And regarding the asteroids, You know, there's about um, 800,000 asteroids that we are monitoring. About 4,000 are comets. 20,000 of, the, of these asteroids are near-Earth objects. And out of them, there are potentially hazardous asteroids that account for about 1945 of these objects. What that means is that those are asteroids that come very close to Earth and their orbit at about, I think, 7.5 million kilometers, which in space units, that's a very, very short distance. And they're larger than 140 meters in diameter. So these are the potentially hazardous objects that we are we are dealing with, and we only monitor 30% of them. So the biggest threat is not the extinction size asteroids that we you know think about when we talk about it, the dinosaurs, but more of the smaller objects that would have definitely a huge impact would destroy whole cities and considering the fact that humanity is urbanizing i mean there should be 70 of people living in cities by 2050 that seems to be the main threat these city killers so in a situation where we try to ensure that everyone has a say in affecting decisions that are going to have impact on them and issues that are impacting them like asteroid or planetary defense it would seem much more appropriate to not have only nation states represented and being the main decision takers regarding planetary defense but also have the cities themselves to have much bigger say because in the nation state concept you sort of have a big democratic deficit where you have countries like india with 1.3 billion people having the same voice as 500,000 people in Luxembourg. So that's not a very you know, representative system there. 
So that's a concept that we work with in our idea of a planetary council that incorporates this cosmopolitan assembly that is based on the democratic principle that those affected by a, de a decision should have a way to influence it. And this, this planetary council is composed of this cosmopolitan assembly as well as some sort of epistemic authority of scientific institution, national academies of science, and as well as, a, as an implementation body of not only nation states that have the money, they have the capacities, but also non-governmental institutions, uh, philanthropists, commercial entities that have, let's say, launch capabilities, that have a lot of money, that have some different motivations for their activities, much more private and innovative than in nation states. So we tried to put together these different concepts and different entities into some much more representative and effective body that would be acting and much more effective in, in planetary defense. That was part one of Nicholas Schmidt from the Institute of Political Studies and Peter Boacek from the Institute of International Relations at Charles University in Prague, talking about planetary defense. Listen next week for part two. You can read more in their book, Planetary Defence. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Com. Please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I've produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania, and my local station 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>